Welcome to Tales of My Dead Heroes. I'm Josh Allen Friedman, and this is part two of Midnight Jerry Lieber, a man I believe to be the equal of Irving Berlin in the second half of the 20th century. We've been dancing all night a man who, like Chuck Berry, created the American vernacular of song. I would ask you to listen to part one for the introduction. Now, before anyone thinks this is pure hagiography, in my admiration for Lieber and Stoller, let me point out that surviving partner Mike Stoller, 85 years old in 2018, is shy, introverted, mathematical, impeccably organized, decent, and relatively sane. But Jerome Lieber, ladies and gentlemen, Jerome Lieber was crazy. When he couldn't take his foot off the pedal, Stoller was the brakes. Jerry Lieber's genius came from a mania. I saw it when it kicked in, and songs came forth from his crazy head. That same mania turned him into what he called Grandma Hyde, a violent change in which he suddenly turned on friends, collaborators, even family. I was prepared for that in order to remain close. He was worth it. After work, Jerry didn't really socialize with rock and roll people. He hung around with novelists and playwrights at table four at Elaine's, men who grew up with Sinatra, not Elvis. He looked up to Broadway's Golden Age composers, all of whom loathed rock and roll. Lieber and Stoller were the wizards of wax, as Life magazine dubbed them, at the top of the Brill Building. They were the music business of the 50s and early 60s. But Jerry's best friends had little respect or understanding of his genius. Jerry adopted this inferiority complex that he wrote disposable junk for kids because Frank Lesser and Sammy Kahn pissed on it, called it three-chord manure, and Jerry's idol, Irving Berlin, said Elvis was gorilla noise. Jerry bought into that. He didn't come to realize his songs were masterpieces that would last forever until he was much older. I, I, you know, I used to write some country songs. Well, it's a huge business now, all in Nashville on those four blocks. Have you ever been there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been there a couple of times. Didn't stay long. Hated the fucking food. I mean, well, how about Pearl is a singer? Pearl, not, no, it's a contraction. Pearl is a singer. Pearl is a singer. Oh, yeah. Oh, Who was that written for? Huh? Who was that written for? Anyone? It was written, it wasn't written for anybody, but it was given to, did I, I played you this, the record, didn't I? No. Elkie Brooks had a smash, number one in London, in, in England. Came over here and did nothing. Here, here, here it goes. You want to hear it? Yeah. Pearl's the singer. She stands up when she plays the piano in the nightclub. Pearl's the singer. She sings songs for the lost and the lonely. Her job is entertaining folks, singing songs and telling jokes in a nightclub. Pearl's the singer, and they sing. Pearl's the singer. She wants, cut a record, 
Was that based on anybody in particular? No, it's based on all the poor, broken-down, 45, 50-year-old chicks that have to sing in third-rate double-A motels. Yeah. Does that give you the picture? The same guys, Lieber and Stoller, who started out writing ditch blues R&B records, wrote some great country songs. Jerry co-wrote Jackson, the iconic number for Johnny Cash and June Carter. By the late 1960s, the coasters and the drifters became graveyards. It was the era of Woodstock and then Shaft, Superfly, and black exploitation soundtracks. The professional Tin Pan Alley songs of the Brill Building were winding down. Rock groups wrote their own songs. But when Newark and Detroit were burning in 1968, the black political left suddenly turned nasty on the music business. At the National Association of TV and Radio Announcers Convention in Miami, white record men received death threats and pistol whippings at their hotels. A black power revolt overtook the stage as irate demands rang out for black takeover of radio and record companies. The great Jerry Wexler, who signed and produced Aretha Franklin, had to be hurried out of the auditorium by musician friends when they got word he was targeted for a hit. Jerry Lieber took this harder than anyone. He felt he should be exempt from any backlash. We felt the sting of betrayal from black musicians, he told me. We felt stabbed in the back. Leroy Jones put a tourniquet on a part of me when he came out with anti-Semitic accusations accusing Lieber and Stoller of stealing from the black man. It seemed we could bestow a lifetime of musical fame, if not fortune, on virtually anyone we wanted to produce. Cherry picked them from nowhere. As the Black Panthers arose, Jerry tried to update the coasters. He wrote a song called Whitey and this amazing demo called Colored Folks. But the songs were too incendiary, and the coasters never did them. Here's Jerry singing. Them browns and tans and high yellow, they tired of doing that show. And I've got news for all you gals and fellas, color folks ain't eating no more crows. Them skinny pickaninnies in the doorway of that shack. Ain't taking no more pictures looking for They ain't acting colored cause they all know they're black Yes, the colored folks ain't colored folk no more do 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 So we have 75, 100 songs that were never recorded, that we never showed to anybody because we were so busy recording the songs we wrote for the sessions we produced. Got it? Mm-hmm. And I found some old, old songs that have never been recorded. The lyrics are going to be in the book? I, we'll, we'll decide. I think they should, but we'll talk about them together to see if, you know... I mean, I have some ideas about them, and I'm sure you will have them, but, you know, some of these things are really way off the beaten path. Like, I mean, I wrote things that are very London... Curry British tone songs that have nothing to do with American blues. Did I ever sing you the prologue to Tango? I don't remember. Maybe not. Oh, the Tango is done with a fistful of cash, a wide scarlet sash, black boots, and whip. Oh, the Tango is done with seafaring trash, 
stealing from the hash fresh off the ship. When the tang was done, it's a dangerous dance, a treacherous step, and if one should trip, the frail body breaks with a snap and a twist, and the gold watch slips onto a back tooth to a thick tattooed wrist, and the gray merchant ship turns black in the sun. To the east, to the east, when the tang was done. How does it go? Rum dump, da da dum, da 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 rum dump, da da dum. Lieber and Stoller couldn't seem to launch an original Broadway show before or after the hit Smokey Joe's Cafe, which was the first jukebox musical still running on Broadway. The best of their musicals that might have been is Oscar, based on Oscar Wilde. Had it been produced before, say, La Caja Fall, it might have been the toast of the town. By now, its fancy pants and poof take on Oscar Wilde might fall upon audiences beset by fag fatigue. Jerry kept ordering rewrites of the libretto, hiring famous Broadway writers, even asking me to take a crack, but I knew better. He would never say it was ready. Though the score of the unproduced musical Oscar is easily the caliber of, say, a Candor and Ebb musical, Jerry felt less qualified than Alan J. Lerner, to mess with the Queen's English. Well, Alan J. Lerner was a Jew from the Bronx, but he actually improved George Bernard Shaw's words in My Fair Lady. But if it wasn't as great as My Fair Lady, Jerry said, why bother? Remember, these are the same guys who wrote Hound Dog. Homosexuals, how I detest them. The very word sticks in my craw why in hell don't they just arrest them well isn't it against the law and of all those so-called gentlemen who really get me riled the one whose very presence makes me feel the most defiled is that intellectual homosexual Mr. Blue Skies Lieber's family settled in a small apartment on Larchmont Boulevard in L.A. RKO and Paramount Studios were two blocks down at Melrose. Jerry hung out at the gate and schmoozed with guards. He'd bring them packs of cigarettes and Cokes. Sometimes they let him inside the studios. One day a little man walked out of nowhere, impeccably attired in a navy blue double-breasted suit with fine gray pinstripes and pointy black shoes. It was a loading dock, a place you only saw workers. The man stood at the edge of a big puddle of rainwater, looking up at the sky and moving his lips. Who's the nut? Jerry asked. Nut, the guard said. You should only be such a nut. That's Irving fucking Berlin. The songwriter? Wow. Jerry didn't know he was still alive. Can I meet him? You must be kidding. No. Can I just say hello? No, you can't do that neither. Why is he moving his lips like that? He looks crazy. You should be so crazy, came the guard. He's writing a song. Then the guard took pity. Look, kid, when he stops moving his lips like that, he's not writing the song anymore. Then you can go in. 
Here's what you do. Are you listening? You go up and say, Mr. Berlin, can I shake your hand? I think you're great. Or maybe you say, Mr. Berlin, I think you're great. May I shake your hand? If he looks at you and smiles, then you shake his hand and say thanks, turn around, and come back out. Don't ask for his autograph or nothing. Got it? After a minute or two, Berlin stopped moving his lips. Jerry walked to the guardrail and asked Mr. Berlin if he could shake his hand. Berlin smiled, offered his hand, and said, Put it there, pal. Jerry walked through the puddle, feeling cold water sluicing through his shoes. But he'd shaken Berlin's hand and was in heaven. In our sedentary fucking old fucking pisshead years, we're getting more and more famous as every day goes by. We're getting more awards, we're getting more honors, we're getting... Mike Stoller was on... It was like, what is today Jerry Lieber's, you know, uh, Jeopardy. I know that? You know that program? Yeah. Jerry Lieber's birthday is, on a, is today, and then the people rang up and they said, no, it's Mike Stoller's. They knew it. Having barbecue at Jerry Lieber's house after midnight was probably more fun than having barbecue at Willie Dixon's house. He was like a Jewish mother in his kitchen smothering you with delights. You like salami? I get salamis from all over the world. This is from Genoa, he would say, with a flourish of mustard. He got pickled fish from some Eskimo store in Edmonton, Canada. Jews and Eskimos have the same taste, he said. He talked like a fat man, but was always thin. He had a specially designed walk-in barbecue sauce closet with obscure sauces from around the world. And if you weren't taken aback by that, there was a separate closet of just hot sauces. And he would whip up these meals at midnight when he was at his best. He had several bypasses at the Cleveland Clinic to clear himself out for more. He offered to introduce me to the Cleveland Clinic, so I could go there for bypasses someday. Jerry's idea of a good time was to spend a Saturday at the farmer's market, searching for old-world ingredients to recreate his mother Manya's chicken soup. Never far from his mind was his impoverished early childhood, raised by his mother, Manya, who arrived in Baltimore by ship from Poland with his father in 1925. Jerry's father died when he was five. I slipped and almost fell into his grave during the funeral, said Jerry. Maybe I should have gone with him. My mother had no money and we moved to the worst slum in Baltimore. Manya from Yuppets. Jerry's mother, Manya, was from a shtetl that she called Yuppets. She always said it ironically. There was no such place, but everyone from her village always answered Yuppets when asked where they were from. It meant nowhere. Both his parents were orphaned children. They had all the psychological quirks that orphaned children have, says Jerry. And they passed all this crap on in the most generous way to me and my sister. We grew up scared and crazy. Yet, Manya wasn't scared and she wasn't crazy. In Poland, she was a bartender and barmaid on the overnight shift. She described the inn as a rough joint, but was prone to understatement. 
Russian Cossacks didn't just enter. They rode horses right up to the bar counter. The ceilings inside were high, but the Cossacks would have to bend in half to get through the entrance. A wide berth separated the bar from the tables. Horses would shit on the floor, and peasants would not dare complain. Six Cossacks at once would burst in and demand their customary vodkas. Things could turn nasty when they got drunk. If they didn't like the way the vodka was tipped off, they wouldn't ask for more. They'd smack the bartender in the face with their riding crops. The server knew right away she'd fucked up with the drink. After they had their fill, they'd gallop off. One night, the owner of the inn asked Manya to fill in for the delivery man. It was 50 miles to Warsaw, quite a haul by horse and wagon. He traveled by two-horse cart to Warsaw every week to refill six-foot barrels of beer. The guy refused to do it one week. He'd been robbed and beaten during the last trip. Bandits lay in wait for travelers along one particularly treacherous stretch. The owner couldn't get anyone, so he asked his barmaid, Jerry's mother. She bargained for four times the kopecks, he offered, and got it. He said he would pay up front. She told him to hold the money. If she returned unmolested with the barrels nearly full, he would give her twice as much because a portion of the beer was always hijacked. Obviously, if she didn't return, he could keep the money, she said. So she set sail. She was only 18, a good-looking woman. Tramps and gypsies ran to the edge of the road and flagged her down at a crossroad lit by a bonfire. This was where the delivery guy would start galloping. But Manya waved back and stopped the wagon. She confronted the leader, told him she was going to Warsaw to fill the barrels. Feigning innocence, she said she'd heard it was treacherous, that there were bandits in hiding. Guys who might have gone into the record business if they'd been born here. If they agreed to protect her, she would throw a party when she got back with the beer and pay them. In a spirit of comradeship with an opportunity to do a good deed for this fine young woman, they agreed. She rode on to Warsaw and returned with enough beer to drown the Russian army. The bandits got loaded, danced, hugged, and kissed her. When she left, they blew kisses and waved goodbye. She arrived back safe in Yuppets and collected her reward. Here's Ready to Begin Again, Manya's song, which Lieber and Stola wrote about Jerry's mother, recorded by Peggy Lee and written at the same time as Is That All There Is? When my teeth are at rest in the glass by my bed and my hair lies somewhere in a drawer Aside from the book we were writing, Kiss My Big Black Ass, which was never finished, we were also going to do an album together and tried to write some songs. For me, it was like having a catch with Willie Mays or Joe DiMaggio when they were old. I had a song called OBGYN. That S-O-B, your OBGYN. Jerry didn't know what an OBGYN was. And when I told him, he said, you can't do that. So who am I to argue with Jerry Lieber? Jerry changed it to the most basic blues lyric. I couldn't tell if he was jiving or 
had actually drifted into songwriting senility. Doing this as a, as a gut pocket blues. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. One, two, three. What kind of man? You're gonna sing a song. What kind of man? You can't rock you all night long. I said, what kind of man? That's the rest of it. What kind of man? But Jerry gave me some lines that were cut from Down Home Girl, a New Orleans record by Alvin Robinson from 1964. Some of the lines taken out were a bit too refined for the times. It's hard to imagine that the young Rolling Stones and the Monkees fully understood the lyrics when they recorded it. I did it on my last album, 60 God Damn It. Jerry Lieber's supreme gift to me was Strike a Match, a song Lieber and Stoller wrote in 1955 for Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf, then left in a closet for 50 years. It's on my Josh Allen Band album from Top Cat Records in 2001. We've been dancing all night through We've been talking and laughing too <laughs> Now I got eyes for kissing you But just one thing before I do Strike the match Let me see Finally, here's a tape Jerry made for Atlantic Records founder Amit Erdogan, or Omelette Erdogan, as the doo-wop groups mispronounced it, for Amit's 80th birthday. Yeah, 
Jerry Lieber passed away in 2011 at the age of 78. I miss him very much. An 80-page chapter on his life appears in my book, Tell the Truth Until They Bleed. I'm going to recommend that all you young folks pick up the Coasters compilation called 50 Coastin' Classics. It's geniusville. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for photos and details. I'll see you next week.